Today on Ag News Daily. And they know, you know, what the job is and they'll work for this amount. Um, and it's always higher if you're hiring contact track labor. Um, but then they'll say, you know what, if you're not going to pay us X amount, then we're going to we're going to go. Good afternoon and happy Wednesday from the Ag News Daily Podcast. It's Ashton Carr joined by Dawson Schmidt. Dawson, it took me a second there. I don't know if you noticed. I had a little hiccup because I didn't realize what day it was. I noticed that too, but it's all right because it's the middle of the week and something I'm definitely looking forward to this weekend. I don't know if Delaney's brought it up, but we have the Iowa State Fair coming up uh, that is kicked off on Thursday. Um, and we'll run through the 22nd. Now, I'm not, my family's never been big on going to the Iowa State Fair. I just started going to it recently the past couple of years. But I mean, there's some stuff I'm looking forward to to seeing, especially with uh, going this weekend. And then next week, uh, my grandparents will also be receiving the Century Farm Award uh, at the Iowa State Fair as well. Awesome. You're going to have to celebrate with a couple of the iconic Long Islands. <laughs> Maybe. And I don't know. Maybe this year I'll dive into the, you know, all the fried stuff, but I usually try to stay away from that just because it's not always the healthiest, but I don't know. Maybe recently I might look to splurge a little bit. See, we're definitely the opposite, Dawson. You like to keep things positive. I feel like I always talk about negative news. I like fried food. You apparently don't. So I guess we uh, just compliment each other. I guess. And it works out for the better just to keep things, uh, you know, moving along differently here on the podcast. Absolutely, Dawson. And I'm going to go ahead and move things right along here and talk about a piece of news that I have today talking about the phase one trade deal. There are some questions about Chinese demand for U.S. ag products as the phase one trade deal moves forward to phase two. Iowa State University Extension economist Chad Hart, who we had the pleasure of speaking with not too long ago, says that the hope and expectation is that China will continue to buy from the U.S., but he expects that it's not going to be as strong as they have been over the past year and to year and a half. He told the Brownfield Ag News that while export activity slowed over their summer, that this is when China usually reemerges into the U.S. market, but there's a caveat. He was quoted as saying, we're in year two of the phase one deal. That means we're in the last guaranteed year of that deal. And I think that this is the wild card here. Hart says that it's possible that phase one forced China to buy a bit more the past two years. And now they'll back off as if the trade deal were no longer in place. However, he does expect demand for feed grains to remain relatively strong as China continues to rebuild its hog herd in the wake of African swine fever. But it, it makes me question what's going to happen after this trade deal is over with. Of course, we've been watching the Biden administration and what they've got going on as far as trade goes. So I'm wondering if we are going to hear something soon from Representative Tai when it comes to our relationship with China. I'm kind of thinking the same thing because it's been a while since we've heard uh, more talks on how you know the Biden administration is going to handle China because that was kind of a big deal Uh you know, at least a month ago that we were talking a lot about that, but it's been kind of quiet recently, to be honest. Yeah, I, I'm thinking so too. And after we have heard these things from Hart, I'm, I'm wondering if we're either going to hear from Representative Tai, any, anyone else in the Biden administration, you know, President Biden himself, or some others in the industry that are kind of on the same brainwave as Hart. 
Very true. But kind of talking about the Biden administration, the USDA is getting more leadership roles going as Jenny Lester Moffitt was recently confirmed by the state Senate or the U.S. Senate on Wednesday as undersecretary for marketing and regulatory programs at the USDA. Uh, Moffitt will also oversee the Agricultural Marketing Service and Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service. Moffitt has been serving as undersecretary of the California Department of Food and Agriculture, which is the number two role of the CDFA. And she is also an organic walnut farmer and has worked at American Farmland Trust and Central Valley Regional Water Quality Control Board. Senate Ag Committee Chairwoman Debbie Stabenow came out and said that Moffitt would bring a wealth of experience and unique perspective as both a farmer, farmer and policymaker, adding that she looks forward to working with her to help family farms and food businesses across the supply chain uh, as they recover from the pandemic. Ranking member John Boozman also came forward saying he looks, looks, also looks forward to working with Moffitt to increase market opportunities for producers and believes that she will work in good faith to carry out the regulatory authorities for which she'll re- be responsible for, for now. The Senate Ag Committee approved on Tuesday the nominations of Robert Bonney as the Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation and former Representative Torres Small uh, to be Undersecretary for Rural Development. So we're getting a lot of more leadership roles being filled in as we're, I think, Oh, man, if my math is correct, about seven months after uh, President Biden took office. So I wonder if there's if we're going to see more to come here in the recent months. I am glad that you are saying on top of that, Dawson, I just have one other story. The newswires were a little bit slow this afternoon, but the story I have is kind of a follow up on the relationship that we saw between Canadian Pacific and Kansas City Southern Railroads. There's a new offer on the table as these two railroads try to acquire a U.S. railroad with strong ag exports connections deep into Mexico. Canadian Pacific Railway reached an agreement with Kansas City Southern stockholders back in March, but then another bid was offered by Canadian National Railroad. Canadian Pacific on Tuesday offered what they called a $31 billion superior proposal. Kansas City Southern stockholders plan to vote on the Canadian National offer on August 19th. If they turn down CN's offer, stockholders can consider the updated offer from Canadian Pacific. You know, I thought that this was going to be a pretty quick deal, but I mean, it's been since March and I haven't heard anything. This is the first thing that has popped up since they made their initial offer. But in a letter to the KCS board, Canadian Pacific says that they already have regulatory approval and the offer by Canadian National has regulatory uncertainty since it's unclear the U.S. Surface Transportation Board will approve the deal. CP says that CN deal also goes against President Biden's executive order on promoting competition in the American economy. Meanwhile, Canadian Pacific says that their deal would also not funnel most rail traffic through Chicago and would also allow more expansion of Amtrak passenger service. If Canadian Pacific's offer is accepted, then Kansas City Southern stockholders would receive CP stock and cash for KCS common stock and CP would assume more than $3 billion in debt. I think this is pretty timely and interesting as we 
dive a little bit more into what's going to happen with transportation, what's going to happen with trade. I mentioned President Biden's executive order about promoting competition, but it also kind of raises some questions for me on the recent legislation that has gone on when it comes to infrastructure and railroads, those kinds of things. So I think that there is a lot up in the air at the moment. For sure, Ash, and it's definitely something I, I've kind of been wondering if there's going to be more of updates on when it was kind of slow. But I also have one last bit of piece of news that comes from a Bloomberg intelligence report saying that plant-based foods could increase by fivefold by 2030. In the report, sales of plant-based dairy and meat alternatives reached $29.4 billion in 2020 and could increase to $162 billion by 2030, making up nearly 8% of the global protein market. Demand is demand has been increasing for companies like Beyond Meat, Impossible Foods, and Oatly, uh, bringing in ter- alternative bro- protein products to more restaurants and grocery stores. Legacy, legacy food companies like Tyson's, Kellogg, and Nestle are also competing in that space with their own plant-based burgers and milk. So we're seeing a lot more of that arise. Um, and they're also using their scale to drive distribution and working with retailers on promotion and marketing. I know it was Beyond Foods that have been trying to reach in international markets, especially in China. I think Impossible Foods was also doing the same, uh, but they're also getting more popularity with just consumers in the U.S. that are more focused on you know their environmental footprint and just kind of be, becoming more conscious about their food. I find this really interesting because we're seeing a lot of hopes for increase in sales when it comes to alternative meats, but then uh, I believe it was on Tuesday. Uh, that Beyond Meat stock was also falling even after news that the plant-based protein maker was also offering fake protein uh, called Beyond Pepperoni for Pizza Hut at its U.S. locations uh, in its latest expansion for the company's partnership with Yum Brands, and it comes to which comes after the port which comes after it reported mixed second quarter results last week. So even with a lot of you know decline in stocks and decline in, I think it was even first quarter earnings with some of these companies. There's still a lot of hope that they're going to be taking up a broader portion of the food market. So I'm curious to see on what that will actually do. Yeah, Dawson, I've got to say, I've been an avid supporter, of course, of the meat industry. And I have voiced my opinions on companies like Beyond Meats and you know these fake meat proteins. And I got to say, you're excited to see what happens. I'm probably not as excited, to be honest, but that's just my opinion. Well, I'm I'm excited to see what happens in the fact that, you know, we're seeing a lot of different changes within the industry. Uh, I talked to different uh, students at Iowa State University. It's been all of our it's been even been in our uh, campus paper that, you know, what what is going to happen to animal agriculture and so by it being interested in seeing what's going to happen it's not really something that i'm advocating for if it push, pushes me the meat industry out of the way so maybe maybe when i'm usually looking on the positive side you know this is a little little bit more of a down and dreary uh, news for me i guess <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I I totally understand that. I'm I guess I'm interested to see what it means for animal protein going forward, but I don't think that, you know, these fake meat analogs are ever going to overtake, you know, the meat protein, traditional protein industry. But Dawson, I am all out of the news for today. What about you? I think that will do it for me as well.
Alrighty, then I'm going to go ahead and just hop into the markets here. Corn and soybeans were seeing green a little bit midday, but soybeans didn't end too great. But I'm going to go ahead and just start off here in the corn contract. The September up seven cents to close at 556 and a quarter. The December up six cents to close at 559 and a quarter. In soybeans, the September down a cent and a quarter to close at 13.47. The November up three and a quarter cents to close at 13.40. In spring wheat, the September down five cents to close at 9.10 and a half. The December down five and a quarter to close at 8.97. Heading over into livestock, right on the screen when we're talking about cattle, starting out here in live cattle, the October down 55 cents to close at 127.57. The December down 22 and a half to close at 133.17. In feeder cattle, the September down 22 and a half cents to close at 162.82. The October down 55 cents to close at 165.30. In lean hogs, green here, so that's some good news for us. In the October contract, up a dollar 97 to close at 85.85. The December up a dollar 37 to close at 78.90. And rounding things out with the class three dairy milk futures, the September down five cents to close at 17.23, the October down 11 cents to close at 17.50. With that, Dawson, I'm going to kick it over to our conversation that we had with a representative from Oregon Farm Bureau for the third installment of our labor mini series. Well, for our third installment of our mini series on labor, we are talking to Piper Sweeney, who is the chair of the Oregon Farm Bureau Labor Committee. Piper, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure, I'm glad to be here. So, Piper, before we really get started talking about labor and what's going on there on the West Coast, let's hear a little bit more about you because you are a producer yourself. Yeah, we um, we grow about 500 acres of hazelnuts. We grow grass seed, wheat, radish seed, and we've transitioned into those crops from um, and some marion berries. And we transitioned into those crops from vegetables because um, you know we had Norpac go out of business, um, and they were our vegetable processor. We've had well, the price is so low. You know, they can hand trim. Uh, produce and ship it here for less than we can grow it here. And it just didn't make any sense. So we've had to transition out of all of that um, into these crops and they're, they're working well for us now. So Piper, you are the chair of the Oregon Farm Bureau Labor Committee. And before we got started talking here, you said that, you know, there's no shortage of topics to talk about when it comes to labor. So why don't you introduce a few of those? I definitely have some deeper subjects that I want to go into, but what are some things that you're seeing right now that are maybe a little bit concerning from a producer standpoint when it comes to labor? Probably the biggest um, thing that concerns us and one of the reasons that we transitioned um, into the crops we're growing now is is um, both labor shortages of you know availability of of um, people to harvest and to you know train uh, berries in particular um, we gosh just a couple of years ago we had um, hired some contract labor who said they'd done the training before they knew you know what it was and and it was warm that day. I'm thinking it was maybe 75-ish or whatever, but um, the whole crew came in, they got into the field 
And within um, some within a half an hour and some within an hour, they all uh, walked off the job. They said, it's too hard, too hot. We're not doing it. And so, you know, getting people who are willing to do the work is, is one of the big concerns um, for us. And, um, and then being required to train um, people who, um, you know, by the different agencies that we provide good enough and adequate training um, for people who've worked in the fields for years, you know, and, and sometimes they don't, you know, they feel maybe a little bit like we're, they're getting talked down to. Um, and then a lot of, I think, advocacy misunderstanding. Um, those, are, those are the things that are top on my list. Piper, you talk about training and with specialty crops, there's obviously got to be some differences there as in, you know, traditional corn and soybeans and wheat that everyone else talks about. Can you kind of give us more insight as to, you know, different things that they have to learn that, you know, maybe they are for reasons they are walking off that may be different that they just don't expect? Um, You know, I think that because um, there's a labor shortage, I think, you know, there's knowledge of that out there for workers. And so they they have the ability to pick and choose a lot more than they did, um, you know, even 10 years ago. Um, but we, we still had people walk off the job after even knowing what it is. But for specialty crops, you have things like um, training berries, which, you know, you've got to have uh, gloves that the berry, um, the berries won't, um, the thorns won't get you and, and, um, Sorry, my words are just, <laughs> I'm struggling with words this morning. Anyway, um, because of thorns, you've got to have special gloves. Those are hot. Um, and then to also learn how to train berries, there's a specific way to train them to where the machines can go through. Um, and so, you, you know, you have to know how to do that. But most, most of the um, contract labor in this area, they know how to do that and they know what they're getting into at least. Um, when you talk to like, a, um, well, we talked to the guys when they got there, have you done this work before? Yes. Were they telling us the truth? I'm assuming, but you know, I guess I don't know, but I think, um, I know of other growers where the, um, crew has walked in, they have stated that they know, you know, they know this crop and they know, you know, what the job is and they'll work for this amount. Um, and it's always higher if you're hiring contact track labor. Um, but then they'll say, you know what, if you're not going to pay us X amount, then we're going to, we're going to go. And so, you know, that's tough because you're in a position where you've already got workers out there and they're threatening to leave if, you know, if you don't um, pay higher wages than what was agreed upon. I don't know how often happens. I know that it does happen. Um, I just had someone tell me that the other day. So um, we, what we've done to sort of combat that, because I think that's pretty, I think just the contract labor is tough because um, because they do so many different jobs. They know what what they like and what they don't like. And so if it's not working for them, they know there's plenty of work out there for the most part, at least in the last, you know, I'd say at least 10 years. Um, what we have done is we just changed crops to where we only need a crew of, like, I think right now we have 13 people. We try to keep it under 10. Um, because there's just um, a lot more to worry about, obviously, the bigger your crew gets. But the people that work for us now, um, we just whittled down to the best of the people who worked for us for, say, you know, some people 30 years. 
um, because they know us, we know them, they, you know, we, we are able to communicate about what they need and, and they know what we need. And I don't know, it, it, it's a lot better if we had um, the hand labor that we used to have, um, we would have to bring in contract and um, it just overall hasn't worked well. And Piper, I want to talk a little bit more about kind of what's been going on more recently. And I don't know if you can give a whole lot of insight to this. I've read maybe an article or two talking about how it's been so hot in your neck of the woods that some people are choosing to have their employees harvest whenever the sun goes down to avoid that. Have you been seeing anything like this? And if you have been, can you give us a a little bit more insight on, you know, proper employee care when it comes to avoiding, you know, heat stroke or, you know, anything else that could happen when they are working under such harsh conditions under the sun? Well, um, I'm going somewhat from um, an interview or it wasn't an interview, I guess we were going to be talking with OSHA and giving feedback on the new, um, the new rules um, from, um, from OSHA and Bureau of Labor and Industry, you know, everybody has input right now with, uh, with this heat. Um, and so what I am hearing that people are doing and what we've been doing is just starting a lot earlier and then, you know, saying, if you want to go home at noon, you can. If you want to go home at, you know, two, you can. Um, the new rules ask that we provide shade so that it, for every two hours that you're out in the sun, you've got 15 minutes in the shade. Um, a certain amount of water um, that you uh, make sure that your crew understands that they need to be drinking. Um, so I think the, the hard part, you know, you were saying taking um, care of your employees. I think the hardest part is that, and I think that's kind of what I'm talking about in terms of advocacy and agency. Um, you have a lot of people making decisions without talking to farm workers. They talk to advocates. They talk to um, you know, all these people that work in offices and, and are, you know, their job is to think of, you know, safety protocols, think of all these things, but they have very little practical knowledge and they don't talk to actual farm workers. Um, and I'm in, in that how, um, one of, one of my examples would be, um, most of the guys that work on our farm, they come to work on even these, the hottest of days. They have a t-shirt, a sweatshirt with a hood, and then pants and, and shoes and, and so forth. Well, on these really hot days, I thought, you know, I know they, you know, they want to be protected from skin cancer and um, potentially from, you know, tanning too dark and all of those different things. So I went online and I found some lightweight clothing that has SPF and, you know, they're like, I don't know, $70 a piece, these, um, but they've got a hood. They do pretty much all the things that, that the guys, had said that they wanted. Nobody's interested in wearing it. And I haven't quite figured out why, you know, we've talked about, it's like, oh, well, we just don't think that'll work, you know? Um, and so an advocate would come and say, you know, potentially that we aren't taking, you know, good care of people, but we have to, um, you know, I guess realize that the, the workers have an opinion. They know what they want and what they don't want. And you can try to sell them on an idea that you think would be more comfortable or whatever, but ultimately that's up to them. And um, we can send everybody home at noon, but if they don't want to go home at noon because they know how many hours they need to work, you know, that's 
you know, then you're, you're trying to say, okay, you know, here's what we need to do for safety and also respect their, um, their decisions to, to, because what they might see it as not everybody, but some might say, well, yeah, now we're starting at five, but that means I could get this many more hours in and I'd rather get those extra hours than to go home. And so then you have to say, and it depends on the temperature, if you really insist or if you kind of let people decide for themselves. Um, so that's kind of what I'm, what I'm talking about is that I think, I think that at least from my experience, um, the workers know, I, I would say not always what they need because sometimes, you know, there is, you do need to really insist on certain things, but you also have to realize that they're adults that are making decisions for their safety. And so it's just a fine line between over being overbearing and then, and being careful, I guess. Piper, when you say there's a fine line between that, do you find yourselves trying to find different ways to both advocate for the business you're running as well as the farm workers that are, you know, working for you, especially when it comes to dealing with OSHA as they don't really talk to the farm workers, they're just talking to the businesses. But do you have to fi find, you know, a way to bounce back and forth and really advocate for both the business and the laborers? Um, you do. I think, um, I mean, we just, we just try, I mean, we have good communication. Again, we have a very small crew. So, um, you know, some of the bigger, um, some of the bigger growers aren't able to talk to people individually where we are. So I think that we're a little bit unusual and that we can, you know, we can have the discussion about it. Um, but um, if you were in a situation where harvest, if you didn't, when we grew broccoli, a couple of hours could change whether you could harvest or not. If you were about to get um, a big rain and everything's mature, you could lose an entire crop with that rain. So if you had a really hot day then, I think that's maybe more what you'd be thinking about, like you're balancing the loss of an entire year's worth of, of you know, input um, and and then keeping everybody safe. And, and that um, for us hasn't happened since we switched to the vegetables. But I know like the cherry growers, they they did it at night, but you realize there's a risk there too because you're on ladders at night. You know, yes, you have headlamps, but that's a little more dangerous. So I think that's the fine line is just sort of being, um, providing everything that you need to provide, making sure if there's a really bad decision being made that you could overrule it, but also then allowing people to make um, their, their own decisions. And this has been a fantastic conversation. I'm glad that we are able to talk about these things and I hope that folks at home enjoy, you know, this labor segment and we're going to continue to have wonderful conversations, but Piper, I want to thank you so much for coming on today and giving your insight and really sharing with us what you've been seeing out in the fields. Thanks again there to Piper for coming on for the third episode of our labor mini series. I've got to say, Dawson, I've been enjoying this a lot and we have some great stuff for the last two weeks of August to round out our labor mini series. So folks, you'll have to tune in wherever you get your podcasts or just hit us up at agnewsdaily.com to follow along as we take an end to this mini series. But with that, Dawson, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.